Good evening. Hello, I'm Peter York and I'm a Media Society Council Member. I'm the stand-in for our Chairman David Walter tonight. And I'm here to welcome lovely you, policy wonks, trainee policy wonks, and tonight's brilliant speakers, and to thank the LSE, Polis, the journalism think tank, and Charlie Beckett for hosting us. And to tell you that we've got some wonderful Media Society things coming up soon. First, a press and TV regulation discussion chaired by my hero, Julia Hobsbawm. That's on Tuesday the 15th. Then there's Gwyneth Williams, controller of BBC Radio 4, talking to Gillian Reynolds. That's on the 16th of November. And then, in your cup, bubbles over, a discussion about the role media play in telling us about the future. That's on the 23rd. So, as a result of that, you must visit the website www.themediasociety.com and you must sign up. It's a snip, it's only 35 quid and you see here the official hashtag for tonight. Tonight's subject is just hugely important. Nobody here will remember Macmillan's Athens to their Rome about the relationship and you might think Papandrea to Berlusconi so it reads a bit differently now. Anyway, who better to discuss the special relationship than Justin Webb? He's a natural agenda setter as a Today presenter, but, but he's also the BBC's former North America editor and the New York Times London correspondent and author of the very funny Anglophiles, Sarah Lyle. Sarah. Thank you so much. It's, uh, can everyone hear? Is this okay? Um, so nice to be here. No, you can't hear. Um, is the mic on? Hello? No. Hello? Oh, yours is on. Yeah, mine's on. Is mine on now? Is that better? No, all right. Um, it's really nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming in the rain and the dark. It feels like it's about midnight, so anyone who's actually left the house gets my vote this evening. Um, it's really nice to be here with Justin, who I've been following for a long time from afar. And he's written a nice book that he's promoting in some ways this evening. It's called Them, them being me, Americans, and us, us being him, British people. So I wanted to start by say, asking if there are any thems in the audience. Are there any Americans out there? Oh. <laughs> okay, so how about British people? Right? Okay. And how about none of the above? Are there any people from... Well, that's pretty impressive, too. <laughs> so he is... And this is available outside after we speak at a uh, very reasonable price. <clears throat> um, so true. Yeah. So Justin's had um, an interesting time because he's now done this move twice. He moved to the United States and then came back after some years and has written in this book about what it was like in both directions, but mostly about America. And so the first question I want to ask is, which was more jolting for you? Was it more difficult to move there and fit in, or was it harder to come back and readjust? You know, it, it, both were hard. Uh, it, it was hard to move there because um, we didn't have any kind of academic interest in the United States. As we as a family, my wife and I, we moved there really for the sunshine. We were in Brussels, where I was the correspondent, deeply unhappy. 
thinking, oh my God, this is a nightmare. Um, someone said, one of our neighbours said to us, living in Brussels is like living on the inside of a milk bottle. Most of you are too young to remember what milk bottles look like, but you sort of get the picture. And we went to America in search of sunshine, uh, knowing absolutely nothing about it, and frankly nothing much about its politics either, except thinking that it was probably a bit like Britain, only much, much bigger. Um, so the shock going there was that, as you all know, um, uh, it's, it's not a bit like Britain. It's not anything like Britain. Uh, it is bigger, um, and the size, I think, is important, as size sometimes is and sometimes isn't. But, but the really, really important thing about it is that it was so culturally different. And the reason I wrote this book, the reason I have a real interest and passionate interest in it, is that I think there is a misunderestimation on the part of the Brits in particular, and possibly on the part of Americans as well, of the cultural difference between you and us. And it was that extraordinary sort of difference um, that, that, that really grabbed me when I went there. Coming back in many ways was easier because I know what Britain is like, though it was still a shock how drunk everyone is. Um, uh, and nothing can prepare you, actually. I came back um, to sort of pave the way for coming back. I was going down to the West Country to Bath, where I have a lot of connections, and I was on one of those trains that stops at Swindon, and they say, you all have to get out and get on a bus that is broken. And you get on the bus, and the most amazing thing about it, I thought, oh yeah, this is England, yeah, this is what I remember. But the thing I hadn't remembered is that everyone on the bus was pissed. And that, and not in the American sense either, well, they were that as well. And so, so you have this real sort of um, uh, cultural difference um, that, that, that of which there are symptoms, but what really interested me in going in both directions was, was the kind of basis. Where does it come from? Where do our, our misunderstandings come from? Well, that's uh, when we spoke last night on the phone, and we, I said, what would you like to talk about? And he said, well, I want to talk about alcohol and sex. So maybe we'll just start with the drinking. I'm really struck by the fact that that has you know, hit you so hard when you came back. Has it changed since you went away? Is it worse now than it was? I feel it is, but I've also got older, and let's face it, that can uh, have an effect, can't it? Can't it? I mean, maybe I've sobered up, and that's the only thing that's really, that's really changed. Um, no, I think, I think there is a change. Um, I think, um, and I'm not the only person to notice it, this country has a real alcohol problem. Uh, and it's very interesting that one of the uh, more independent-minded members of Parliament, Sarah Wollaston, who was, and we might get back to this, because this is the only sort of semi-academic point I have to make in the book, which is one of the things we can learn about the American political system, uh, is not to be obsessed with the balloons and the razzmatazz and, and Herman Cain and all the rest of it, but actually focus on open primaries, which could in this country make a real difference, I think, to our politics. And actually is one of those things that could be incorporated in a parliamentary system without any kind of major um, uh, um, structural changes being necessary. So there is one woman in Parliament who was elected um, uh, on, a, on an open primary, Sarah Wollaston, she's the MP for Totnes, a Conservative. She has um, uh, said recently that MPs are drunk, often drunk when they speak in the House of Commons. She said that the bars in the place should be closed down. Uh, has, she, has she been promoted to health minister? I think not. Is she going to be? I think not. There are still, at, at very senior levels, it's not just about kids being drunk in the street. At senior levels in this country, um, drinking too much is still uh, a, a sort of semi-respectable thing to do. Whereas it struck me in the States that outside of college, it's not really respectable to be drunk in public. 
And certainly in sort of classic suburbia, you wouldn't do it. And I went, I, one of the first things I, I did in the States, we went to, we knew a, a guy who worked for CNN, and we went to a, his party, and I thought, wonderful, there'd be lots of movers and shakers, and indeed there were, it'd be a sophisticated uh, Washington suburban party, which it, which it sort of was, except that uh, there was no booze at all. Uh, they were drinking Cherryade. Um, and I, you've got a story, haven't you, of your husband's reaction, your my, English husband's My English reaction. husband and I went to lunch at a friend of mine's in, outside of New York, and it was a very nice lunch, and her boyfriend was there, and we had a lovely time, and we were leaving, and my husband said, you know, he was very nice, but it's such a shame that he's an alcoholic. And I said, well, why do you think that? We didn't have any alcohol at lunch. And he said, well, that's why. I assume that it's because he's an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, we can go into all sorts of cultural um, discussions of why why it is, and you know, is it because you're a more inherently uptight society? Is it? Is it? Is it? Well, no. I mean, I honestly, I, I think there is. You know, a lot of people get drunk and say, well, I, I did all these things because I was drunk, I'm not responsible for it. But you can argue also that people get drunk in order to do the things that they're doing and then disclaim responsibility. Um, and you can also, you know, I was really struck by um, courtship techniques in Britain that really almost always seem to start with two people getting trashed at a pub and then going home together. Is this another way? <laughs> and then, you know... Maybe you'll like each other in the morning and maybe not. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. they're, you know, they're yeah. nervous. Whereas you all meet at church. Yes, we all meet at church. <laughs> That's not an option open to us anymore. Well, that brings me to my next question. I'm going to read the beginning of Justin's book out loud um, and then get to the next point I want to make or the next question. Um, America was not designed to be left. Um, when our time came to leave after eight years of living in the U.S., we approached the checkout with typical Englishness. For effect, we exaggerated our sadness at the end of our time in America. The result, confusion. Our British home is in South London, so we'll probably all be murdered before Christmas, we said to friends. Oh my gosh, um, why not stay, they replied anxiously. Uh, because you have no sense of humor, would be one answer. <laughs> um, so when I was I, writing my book a few years ago, one thing that I, I found in an odd sort of way was that a lot of the cliches that I had come and thought I would learn were just cliches and nothing more turned out to have grains of truth in them or actually be actually true. And I wonder if you could tell us some of the things that you had, preconceptions you had about kind of American character that then turned out to be true when you got there. Yeah, I mean, there is. I, I, number one, and I think this is actually a direct relevance to the current state of the world economy and the way in which we may all have to um, live in the future. Um, Americans are more generous. Um, it, it, and not necessarily generous to strangers, but generous to themselves. And what I mean by that is that because of the way that the United States was set up, there genuinely is, it seems to me, a greater degree of self-reliance fostered from a very early age in everyone. Where I lived in Washington, D.C., we're actually in D.C., we're not in the sticks. Um, the local fire service was entirely voluntary, entirely. Uh, and they used to come round at night and collect money. And I imagine they collected a lot of money and had some very shiny fire engines. Um, and there is this sort of sense, you know, and you could probably go to other areas where they didn't collect so much money and the fire engines were pretty broken down. But there is that, 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 that um, model for living 
which you can over-exaggerate because there is, after all, a deal of, of, of social services in the United States and it's by no means the kind of winner-takes-all winner um, economy that we sometimes portray it as. But fundamentally, there is, at its core, a greater degree of genuine belief in self-reliance and in funding yourself. Look at the way they fund their universities. Look at how wealthy Princeton is compared with the LSE. You know, it's partly that our funding model has been so different for so long, but it's also partly that when you know folks like me get the letter from the LSE, it's you know there's always something better to do with the money. When people get the Princeton letter, they say, "Oh my gosh, I'm so proud!" And I'll give them a hundred bucks by return of post. It's quite interesting writing a book actually as well. So, so I wrote a, a few emails to American friends saying, "Hey, I've written this book. You might be amused by it." Most of them, most of them, replied. Uh, I've just bought it. Great. I've just gone on to Amazon and bought it. You send the same email to British people and they say, oh, have you got a free copy? I can have it. <laughs> and I think that's sort of fundamental. So you can sort of, you can, you can, you can suggest um, uh, that, that 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 cliche characteristic, that you are more open and more generous, including with yourselves, is just a cliche. But I think there is a, a, a real kind of strand of truth. And possibly what you're bringing up there, too, is the sense of being proud of your institution, proud of your country, being able to say that you're proud. You know, here, you know, people to a fault, I think, are embarrassed to promote themselves. They're embarrassed to promote the institutions they're part of. It is embarrassing to wear, you know, I don't know about the LSE, but in some universities, people don't seem to want to wear their sweatshirts. Yeah. So the opposite of where... Well, we went to, um, we used to go to a kind of holiday camp sort of island in South Carolina. We used to drive down from Washington. I had very young children when we were there. It was a day's drive to just south of um, uh, Charleston, a beautiful place called Kiowa Island. And um, at Kiowa Island, they have, um, every week, they have an ice cream social, which is for all the children. And all the parents go along with their little children, and someone, there's an entertainer, who, who, and he starts his talk like this. He says, where are you all from? <laughs> and it's the parents, not the children, who are all going, Maryland, yo, Illinois. And you can, you can imagine here, so Somerset, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it would be completely unthinkable. That but you also, could, they're not being ironic And they're either. not being ironic. No, they actually no, mean no, it. No, absolutely not. They genuinely had an attachment, which is the keystone to understanding American patriotism that it comes from that, that, that attachment to community, which, I mean, let's, you know, I, I don't want to be too ridiculously positive about the United States, particularly in your uh, company, and it, God knows it's, it's a troubled place in many respects, but at its best, that sort of, that, that, that ideal, which is sometimes honoured in truth, um, is, is, a, is an ideal of attachment, and it comes from, actually, in a sense, a lack of irony. A lack of, you know, as I say in the book, we we tried to sell our house in in Washington D.C. when we came to go, and it's there's a light bulb that isn't working. So there are all kinds of people come around and say we're going to have to fix that. And I'm saying to them, well, my house in London is actually physically falling down, but nobody in Britain would care because we all sort of believe that everything's falling down. Americans don't have that kind of sense. They think things can be fixed. They're proud of them. They want to kind of in, uh, 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 change the way things are around them, and they, and they think that they can, and that's a really fundamental We believe thing. in the pursuit of happiness, well, and yes. you all, pursue, I think, believe in the pursuit of making do with what you have. Yeah, and irony. <laughs> and irony. But that's, I mean, that brings up an interesting um, point you make in your book, or an interesting discussion of how America now has to adjust to its new place in the world. You know, it's no longer 
the great superpower it was. It's really declining in a lot of ways and has been you know, more precipitously now. Um, and what you're saying, I think, and part of the book maybe you could talk about it, is how is America going to deal with it, with this great sense of, of possibility and optimism that we have? Are we equipped to deal with decline? Is Britain better equipped to deal with decline because they expect decline somehow? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Americans of all political parties and none have to come to terms with, not, not decline uh, in, in absolute terms. I, I simply don't believe that America is in absolute decline. However much Americans themselves do believe it at the moment, it's a trope that comes up, as you all know, again and again throughout American history. Um, uh, I, I don't think it's any truer now than it ever has been uh, in, in the past. What I do think, obviously, is that America is going to have to get used to relative decline. There are other parts of the world which very obviously are rising, and that is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it might be a very good thing. Um, and it's a matter of, of, of translating that idea um, to Americans and, and getting them to understand it. And the fact is that a lot of the United States is terribly insular. Um, and they have a view of foreigners and of foreign success that is still too much of a zero-sum game. Uh, and they don't grasp the possibilities of it. Um, and, and often, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of cheap shots you can take at, at, at American um, uh, isolationism of the mind, and there is plenty of it. I, I, I was at a, um, a rally with John McCain during the election campaign, and um, he was in rural Ohio, so he's there doing a mock town hall meeting, one of these faux things where he's on a sort of dais like this, and it, He's got a microphone, and actually everyone's been vetted. You know, they all have been Republican Party members for 50 years to get in. But in fact, the suggestion is there are just folks who just come on, come in out of Starbucks, and he hands hands the microphone down to people, and they say things like, you know, John McCain, you're a wonderful guy, and then that's what passes for a question. And this woman, I, I was, <coughs> this, this this woman seizes the microphone and says to him, this is, this is on YouTube, by the way, you can look it up. This woman says to him, uh, John McCain. You're one. And he says, thank you, man. Thank you. And she, she snatches the microphone back. She says, Senator Obama, you'd be a disaster for our country. And Joe McCain says, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And then she seizes the microphone again. And she says, Senator Obama, he is an Arab. <laughs> and you can see this look of absolute horror going through McCain's face. Because this is rural Ohio, where it's fine to say that. But it's also being televised nationally, where it's not so fine. <laughs> And, and, and he seizes the microphone back. But here's the clincher for me of the kind of confusion that there is about the outside world. He seizes the microphone back and he says to her, uh, No, ma'am, no, ma'am. Uh, Senator Obama is not an Arab. He is a family man. <laughs> um, and and it, it, it's that kind of sense of, of Americans talking to themselves about the outside world, having a greater understanding of the outside world, and particularly of, of the Arab world, given the events since that incident in, in Ohio, but actually much more, more broadly of, of a kind of sense of other people's um, and also other people's cultural differences um, and not necessarily their adherence to all the things that Americans think that, that, that they should adhere to. And it's a matter of translating that into um, uh, advices almost, the, the word rather than persuasion, from America's knowledgeable politicians, academics, traveling people, of whom there are millions and millions and millions, of course, to the rest of the country. That's, that's, that's the challenge, so that you don't have this kind of fear of the outside world, and in particular, of course, fear of China that is so prevalent at the moment. And fear of the Arab world, and I think, too. Yeah. Um, 
Sure. I think you were talking a little bit, too, about how Britons can help um, the United States with this. Yeah, I mean, I think we can help by decoupling, actually, and by forgetting our obsession with this special relationship that probably never really uh, uh, properly existed. Um, and, and in doing that, we then allow the United States um, the benefit of genuine friendship from a partner who is neither kowtowing um, nor exhibiting the kind of um, um, condescension that, as Peter mentioned, <laughs> Harold Macmillan, you know, will play the Greeks to their Romans. In other words, we are, however successful America is, for all sorts of weird reasons, how did that happen? Uh, but whatever that success is, basically, it's a kind of brutish success. It's thick, and we're still the bright guys in this relationship. If you can get away from that, I think Britain can be a much better friend to the United States, until it's still actually quite a valuable partner in certain circumstances around the world, but it also then allows the United States to focus on other things and other areas of the world. And I, one particular bugbear in mind is, is, is the, the, the rest of the Americas. Um, people tend to think about the United States focusing on the Pacific side or the Atlantic side. I mean, actually, I think both sides are wrong. They should look south because that, in a sense, is where the easiest uh, pickings are in terms of um, trade and uh, um, amity and a sense of um, togetherness that could really change the U.S. And when you think about the demographics, you know, which all of you will know better than I do, the U.S. is becoming an increasingly Hispanic Latino uh, country. Uh, and it's a matter of kind of melding that in with the rest of, of, of South America. And I think that should be where future American presidents concentrate, as they always say they're going to now when they come to power, but it never quite happens, rather than worrying about us. And the problem with this special relationship discussion, um, isn't it, is that it always gets bogged down in this issue of who's more polite to who in these encounters between the president and the prime minister and what gifts they give each other. Wasn't there some thing? Well, yeah, I mean, they gave, Barack Obama gave Gordon Brown, who famously is, is uh, sadly going, um, well, he is blind in one eye, isn't he, and, and, and his sight in the other is quite bad. He gave them a set of DVDs, which anyway, if it was a bad present, but it's also DVDs that are NTSC um, <laughs> rather than um, PAL, so you can't watch them in this country. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, that was... Uh, and so they helped you out the gift shop, like a replica of They gave them a regular replica of Air Force One, which you know, I mean, everyone's been on there, you know, anywhere near the White House has got this, this thing. Uh, it's difficult to avoid getting it. Uh, you get the M&Ms, too, and, and even if you don't want them sent to you um, days later, if you ever well, go on Air Force that's kind of nice. One. Don't you think? No, no. It's, I mean, it's nice. For, look, it's nice for me um, and uh, thrilling. But if you're a prime minister, you're probably not that fussed, really, about that, that sort of thing. Or hopefully, but I mean, the, the the other big thing that that Obama did when he came to power, which caused genuine upset, um, certainly in the British press and to some extent, I think, in some circles in in Parliament, um, was he had the, the the bust of Winston Churchill that was in the Bush Oval Office. Um, put in a taxi and sent away, uh, where it eventually found its way back to the, the British Embassy. And you know, anyone who's been in Washington will know that if, if you put something in a taxi and send it somewhere, <laughs> you're making, I mean, it's quite a, 
It's quite a leap of faith, um, because all the, taxi, all the taxi drivers in Washington come from Eritrea. They're all incredibly nice, cheerful people, but they don't know much about the streets of Washington. Well, surely there was an escort. It they, wasn't in there on its own. I, I think it was in there on its own. I anyway, Who I asked a, 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 a senior um, White House official on my last day in the White House, I went to see this guy, and I said to him, he's a well-known figure, I can't say who it was, because they all do everything on the background. So I went to see this guy, and I said, what was it with the bust of Churchill? Why did you do that? And he said to me, oh God, he said, you people, you're just utterly obsessed. He said, um, he said, we, we thought it was Eisenhower. <laughs> he, said, he said, one no, elderly white guy looks much like another to us. And, and he was only half joking. And there's that sense of just Brits should just get butt out. Forget about all that nonsense. Forget about church. Or just get over it. Get over it. Yeah. Or get, oh, now tell us what Gordon Brown gave to Barack Obama when he received oh, these he gave DVDs. Some, I can't remember, but it was something incredibly thoughtful, like you know, half a Viking ship or something. <laughs> I think it was a pen fashioned from the wood from some historic That's, ship that had yeah. to do with, with... I'm sorry. HMS? That's well, thank it. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Which was a exactly. really good yeah. present. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, that had a team of civil servants thinking about it for... Yeah, the desk already, so keep the <laughs> well, it's straight in time. <laughs> um, what do you think? I wonder what Gordon Brown will get to go with the DVDs. Then. Maybe he'll get the player that you can play them in. <laughs> no, I just want to move to, you all should read this book, but I'm going to ask Justin to talk about this extraordinary revelation he has at the end of it, which comes as a bit of a jolt to the reader, because he's been telling these sort of interesting anecdotes and interesting policy analysis, and then he suddenly has this very revelatory biographical story in there, and then he uses it as a way to discuss something, which we'll discuss in a minute, but just can you tell them what it was? So the story is that um, I had a slightly strange upbringing. Um, I was um, the illegitimate son of a man who was extremely famous for a time in the 1970s in Britain, um, uh, Peter Woods. He read the news at a time when the news was, you basically had a choice of ITV or the BBC, and something like 20 million people a night out of a population which would then have been, I don't know, 50 million or less, um, watched it. So uh, he had enormous sort of uh, impact as a newsreader, it would be instantly recognisable. <clears throat> My mother had had an affair with him. He was already married and had young children of his own. She wanted to have... She told me that I was his son, but she very obviously didn't want to have any contact with him or for it to go any further. And I kept it a secret um, in the way that children can keep secrets. And doubtless many of you, have, have, you know, you're all related to newsreaders in the various countries that you come from. You're all don't, thinking, don't take it too You're far. all thinking, tell me something new. Uh, but, I mean, basically, so I'd kept it a secret and... Uh, for a very long time, in fact, until earlier this year when I was 50, and I finally revealed it because I felt I needed to because my children were asking who, you know, what my parentage was on my, my father's side. And I wasn't ever able to tell them because if I told them, they would have gossiped to their friends and um, it just would have, it, 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 I would have had no control <coughs> in, over how it came out. So I took the decision just to say, this is, by the way, the case, because he is dead, my mother is dead, and crucially his wife, uh, his first wife, is also dead. So there was no one who could be um, hurt by this. Uh, and I then, in the book, compare this bottling up uh, of this secret over the years with the extraordinary way in which our friends in suburban Washington, D.C., would, you know, the tiniest thing would send them to the, to the analyst uh, for hours on end. Uh, and, and, you know, the different ways that we uh, have of, of, of dealing with 
you know, these these issues that do exist in families. On but he, that's what's so interesting is you then tell us this extraordinary thing, and it leads into a discussion of how you were not, you know, bothered by it so much that you need to really talk about it anymore. You know, there's nothing about it that's affected you that you need to explore because, like, you've worked it out or you don't think you need to work it out, etc. And I kept thinking, I'm going to sit there on stage, I'm going to convince him to see a shrink because obviously, <laughs> I, when I gave my husband as a, a Christmas present a few years ago, a New Yorker cartoon, I had it blown up where it's one of those ones where the guy lies on the shrink's couch and he's the businessman with his briefcase and he's saying to the shrink, you may say I'm in denial, but I really think my personal life is none of my own damn business. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, honestly, yeah. it's, it's a little bit mischievous because here you are, you know, <laughs> confessing in public to this, you know, very tr traumatic thing and then saying, well, you know, it's totally fine, I'm over it or, or whatever. It's really interesting that, I thought. Yeah, well, maybe I'm saying. I mean, I'm, I'm not the best judge of whether I'm over it. Am I? And luckily, my wife isn't here, so she <laughs> she can't tell you either. Um, and it's like British people who go to boarding school at the age of six. I mean, I got a friend who's actually Robert Moore, the the ITN's um, uh, Washington correspondent. Uh, so the, the BBC's competitor, um, child. He's a very close friend of mine, and he went to boarding school very early in his life. And I think he would say it's had no effect. But I think we, as his friends, would say, oh, it's had no effect. Uh, um, and I mean, similarly with, with um, uh, my father. But I think the point that I'm making is that um, there is a tendency in Britain to think, okay, it's had an effect, sod it, let's carry on. Uh, whereas in particularly, I mean, it's, this is not an America-wide issue, because frankly, most Americans don't have the money to do this, but it's a particularly wealthy American issue, is that, oh my gosh, let's go and let's talk it through endlessly, and let's then become obsessed, and this is where I... I think in the book are quite critical of, of our American friends. Oh God, I, I think there's someone I'm going to read it to. It hasn't occurred to me. Anyway, so do I name anyone? Uh, uh, it, it's too self-obsessed, and I tell the story in the book. Narcissistic, narcissistic, and 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 extends right down to children. And we have a, a which I think I do mention in the book. There's a friend uh, whose whose child, who then would have been about seven or eight, said to my wife, uh, Sarah, "Do you like me?" And I just thought that, I mean, to use an American word, that was an inappropriate question. And we, in a way, would probably avoid that generally, however badly we treat children in other respects in this country, we would avoid that degree of narcissistic self-examination, certainly that young. And I think it is a harmful thing um, among those Americans who have the money to do it. You know, it's interesting. I think it's one of those things that is leaking over here. I mean, my kids go to school in the British system, and when one of them was quite little, she came home and said, Mummy, um, I think Mr. Ashton is hurting my self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the fact that you, you can say it probably means he isn't, but, um, but it, you know, it seems yeah. straight from the American playbook. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I mean, if, if it is happening, then I think we should stop it. But surely there's a happy medium. I mean, surely there's a, a way to find, you know, so you're not gushing every second and you're saying, you know, my leg blew off and it doesn't matter, you know, so it did Yes, yes. Well, point. yes. Well, what is that? Great. It's Wellington. It's the Wellington, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. you've yes. lost your leg. Yes. By God, so. sir, so I have. Yes, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. We see, I'm still of the generation that thinks that is actually a jolly good thing and uh, I think you have a better life for dealing with the blowing off of your leg with a degree of insouciance. Uh, then, and, I, and I think I, you but see too much in America of the kind of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about my leg? It's blown off. 
talk well. about it. <laughs> okay, but here's something, and I, I don't want to... The leg is off. The leg's gone. <laughs> yeah, but there's Face a, it. There re, Suck it up. Repercussions. <laughs> I don't want to belabor the point, but I think there are... This is the leg still. This is... Yeah. Well, no, it's... <laughs> we're moving on from the leg. But um, I think that there's a devotion to appearing stoic that often you know, masks how you might really feel, and maybe that's good. I mean, it is very, people feel very, um, like they've really uh, achieved something if they can go to a sad thing and not cry. For example, you know, my, my mother-in-law's was, the one thing she was told at her father's funeral is you are not allowed to cry. And she was little, mm -hmm. and she was so proud of herself. Yeah. Um, and I interviewed one, someone who was a writer, and I'm not gonna say who, because I, I don't think he would want me to know, and he's dead now, but he was quite ill, and he had the most marvelous attitude about it. He was he, English. He was, you know, champagne all day, and, you know, I'm not afraid. It's, you know, I can barely walk. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm in pain, blah, blah, blah. But it's, you know, I have the most marvelous life, and I love reading Dickens, and I write every morning, and blah, blah, blah. So I was being driven to the train station by his wife, and I said, oh, he's so marvelous. He said, the minute, she said, the minute you leave, he'll be saying how scared he is and how much in pain he is and how awful it is. And I think there is a price people pay sometimes for having to pretend that things are great. Yeah, no, I think that's a reasonable point. And I certainly, when it comes to the, um, uh, you know, the, the idea of going to, you think of the royal family and the, the funeral of, of Princess Diana and the kind of stiff upper lip stuff. I think, I think um, you know, the jury is out on whether that is a terribly good thing for individual people. Um, we can't really escape discussing the American political situation now and how ill-tempered the debate is, how, as you point out, people sort of talk over each other, around each other. They don't really talk to each other anymore. And you really lived in America during the time where that was happening, I think. Why do you think that is? What, you know, I've watched it from abroad with a great deal of alarm. It's, it's horrifying, actually. Yeah. I don't know, actually. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I mean, I have a, a shot at it that one of the reasons is possibly the um, absence of impartiality rules in your broadcasting system. Mm -hmm. So Ronald Reagan got rid of the, what was it called, the Fairness Doctrine. Fairness Doctrine, fairness yeah. doctrine Which sounds awfully good, having a Fairness Doctrine. Doesn't yeah, it? so, I mean, basically, but I mean, never really um, applied to everyone. But there was a, a set of rules in the United States as that roughly approximated to what we have here, um, which is that um, on the main broadcast channels, in fact on all channels that you can get through a TV, um, you are mandated to be uh, broadly impartial over time. You don't have to be impartial on any one program, but you do have to be impartial uh, over time. And what that does is damp down the passion of um, debate to an extent because there is a kind of purpose at the heart of the endeavor that is finding some kind of objective truth or faux objective <coughs> truth. Whereas in the States, with none of that stuff, um, you know, and with Fox News and MSNBC and talk radio and all the rest of it, um, and the commercial imperative to grab attention, attention all the time, um, that that impartiality stuff has all been long forgotten. It's not a big driver commercially. It's not a big driver because it's it's not part of the law. And I think that that, that has at least created the context where this kind of nightmare, mad debate, uh, if you can call it debate, um, then takes off. I also think that the lack of involvement of the 
of the actual players in debating each other has an effect. In Britain, you still have, and certainly on the programme I work for, the Today programme, but on other programmes as well, you have real debate between real players um, who do have to meet each other um, in, in Parliament the next day and do have to deal with each other. Um, in America, if you watch an average sort of political chat show program in the evening, they'll never get real players. What they get is proxies who are kind of crazed, self-publicist, narcissistic, mad people, <laughs> who just lay into each other um, uh, for fun. And that, I think, has a, has a, has a poisoning effect. That we, don't, we don't have that class of person here, actually. We have very, um, uh, it's just not something we do, and it's partly because of our, our, our broadcasting um, setup. So those, you know, apart from all the obvious things about America just splitting us apart to an extent between extremes who believe very different things about the place, I think there are some sort of structural reasons why the debate has become so, so um, acid and, and horrible. You know that great quote from I think Moynihan a few years ago saying you can dispute my opinion but you can't dispute or you can we can have differing opinions but we can't argue about the facts. Yeah, he said now, you're entitled to. Oh, All Americans right. yeah, yeah. are entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And and now most Americans, possibly many of you, think you are entitled to your own facts. <laughs> not these ones. No, no, of course. <laughs> but it's they're it's so interesting. It's like things. when we sort of talk about the differences between the two cultures, it's like they're inside out. Because your newspapers are a lot crazier yeah. than our newspapers, yeah. but our broadcasters are crazier than yours. Yeah. And your political system in general is a very collegial system, except when you get prime minister's questions, which yes. you would never have in the United States. You know, they're all way too nice to each other yeah. in some ways in, in the Senate. I wonder also whether part of the reason that debate is so poisonous in America is that nobody can do anything. And that's another difference between our system. Our system looks such a mess. Uh, but actually, we have you know, what was once called elective dictatorship, and even with a coalition government, for, for better or for worse, they are able to come into government and do things from that day. Um, and, and you can then argue about what they're doing, but something is happening, and people on one side and the other side feel we can get into power and we can change things. In the United States, partly because of your glorious constitution, uh, you can't do anything at all. At least it's uh, written down. It, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's absolutely static, and nobody feels a sense that you can get a grip and actually try something out. Um, even when Obama came to power with whatever it was, 52, 53% of, of the vote, and in his pomp in those first few days in office, he, he, he wasn't an old bit that he cocked it up himself pretty badly, but, but that on one side, there's still a feeling on, on both left and right in America, we can't you know, get anything done. And I think that probably also adds to the sort of poisonousness of the debate, if that's worth Now, I was told that now it's, yes, time to open to questions. So I think there'll be microphones going around from these nice people. So just if you could identify yourself if you feel like it, and then just ask your question and who you'd like to ask a question to. would be great. Richard Fitzwilliams from the Media Society, public relations consultant and royal commentator. Um, my question deals with religion. I just wondered why in the United States at the moment religions seem to be so tremendously popular in so many um, 
or practically everybody, in a very large percentage of people, in all groups in the population. Whereas, I mean, in Britain, putting it mildly and being generous and not wishing to dwell too much on the Church of England at the current state, but I mean, there is a slightly cranky aspect or, to religion. And the other thing is, I can't resist asking you, since you mentioned the political class, class and the crazies, what you think of the Ides of March, George Clooney's latest fascinating thriller. Actually, I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen it. Um, it. The religion thing is, is weird. I mean, it is one of those great cultural differences that in America, when times are tough, um, people turn to religion. In, in uh, Europe, generally, when times have been tough, people turn to socialism or booze or both. Um, and, and why that is has um, uh, wellsprings in the way in which the kind of... Um, the way in which society has been set up and the, and, and the belief structures that, that exist at a really fundamental level um, and, and, and the, the kind of the crutches that are available when things go wrong. And I think it's fair to say that in the United States, um, uh, throughout its history, um, religion has been important. It's important all the time, but it's been particularly important and religious revivals have been particularly important. At times when when things were tough, and I think one of the reasons why um, uh, the U.S. has gone through this this revival, which it unquestionably has in recent times, um, is 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 simply that. Um, I think there is another um, sense to it as as well. It's it's just one of those sort of aspects of American um, exceptionalism. Um, they they. What is America? If you, if, you, if, you, if you support and like and love and want America to be successful um, and see challenges all around the world, what do you turn to? You turn to the kind of core aspects of what the nation is. And unquestionably, one of those core aspects um, is, is religious belief. It is also, I think, fair to say that a lot of it is to do with Karl Rove, who spotted that evangelical Christians generally were not actually terribly good voters um, in the United States. They weren't terribly reliable. Um, uh, they certainly weren't reliably Republican. Quite a lot of them actually weren't reliably voters at all. They were interested in other things. Uh, they, 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 they sort of dipped in and out of the political system. And, and one of the kind of genius things that Karl Rove spotted was that these people were there to be marshaled and used as a, as a Christian army on behalf of a candidate. If only he could find the right candidate, and this was way back before Bush came along, when he was, when he was in Texas. Well, in fact, it was when Bush was, was governor of Texas and before he was governor of Texas. But Rove realized that these people were there to be found and marshaled. And he kind of introduced them into, at least in modern terms, introduced them into the body politic of America and got religious causes, these so-called wedge issues, social issues, right introduced into the, 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 the middle of the American debate. Not always hugely successfully. And there was a, a big, I don't know if anyone remembers Terry Schiavo, the, the case of the, the terribly sad case of a woman in Florida who was um, brain dead, um, who'd had some sort of a stroke or aneurysm, and her, her husband wanted her to be allowed to die. Her parents didn't. It was during Bush's first term, I think. Huge, huge, or possibly early on his note, but it was his first term, huge 
fuss and Bush, feeling that he had marshaled religious America, then wanted to push um, all the way, um, put pressure on the Supreme Court to allow her to be kept alive, or the lower courts had said she should be allowed to die, and interestingly lost. Um, in spite of the fact that religious America, um, particularly the Roman Catholics, but actually also evangelicals as well, he brought together this big coalition of people when it came to policy um, uh, and when it came to the law, actually they didn't have that kind of uh, impact that possibly they had hoped that they would. So there are still limits to the extent to which, and I think sometimes in Britain we slightly exaggerate the religiosity of the American system. Uh, and we are, after all, it is you have the established church. Um, uh, and, and in America they still have a pretty strict division between church and state but yeah in, in terms of, of religion's importance in politics I, I think those are some of the reasons at least why it's suddenly taken on the, 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 the force it has uh, My name's Tony Meaden I'm actually a, was I should say a contemporary of Kevin so though I never met Kevin, Justin I knew I was going to say Kevin um, <laughs> We're worried about Kevin, aren't we? Yeah, we're worried about Kevin, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've also had a letter from the annual fund this week. But that's not my question. My question is, there is one thing which is common to both ourselves and America at the moment, and that is Occupy and the Wall Street and the St. Paul's <coughs> events. And I'd like both of you to reflect, if you would, as to the relative successes that are being achieved by action like this? Well, I mean, they've had a huge success, haven't they, if their impact was intended to be on the Church of England, which they virtually single-handedly brought down. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, on the wider city? Um, possibly. Um, I mean, I think they've managed to get themselves into a space in British debate about what should happen next, what capitalism 2.0 should look like um, that wasn't really being occupied by anyone else um, and, um, uh, and, and they've had a pretty respectful hearing really across, across the board so I, I, mean, I would say here they've been quite successful. The American what, what, what Well I think it's interesting because it's obviously they've exported their original um, sit-in to lots of cities and lots of countries around the world so it's this idea of this global uprising against some inchoate set of problems that people aren't sure exactly what if it's not just the system or whatever and that's been really interesting. I mean I think it's this group of people who are just you know mad as hell <laughs> they're not going to take it anymore in the old network phrase yeah. but um, you know they're not necessarily sure what they want but it's interesting that they've been able to send this message across to so many different places yes it's I mean it's it's it, it, the, the ideas are not new are they that um, uh, that there is another way of living that accentuates aspects of the human character that are not those that are necessarily to do with commercial success. But often those people just go off, you yeah. know, people feel that way, kind of go off yeah. the grid and do it, you know, quietly. Yeah. And I think what's, you know, what I don't think we've ever seen this kind of idea of camping out outside of the financial center to protest the system. I mean, you might get people upset about one bank's policy or some, you know, labor dispute. But the idea that it's so broad is a new one, I think. And that it's a sit-in and not just a march or a demonstration. And a long-term sit-in, it seems. Yeah, 
Um, maybe someone, whoever wants in the front. Okay, this lady here. Hi, um, I'm an American. I've lived here for a number of years. Um, I also used to live in Washington, um, worked on Capitol Hill even briefly, um, and in New York. So um, I'm one of the East Coast uh, people, I suppose. Um, I wanted to just make um, three quick comments about what you were saying and see, we, see what you had um, to say. One of them sort of picks up on what you um, said earlier. I've been often accused of having a can-do attitude. That's all very well with that American can-do attitude, but, you know, this is Britain and, you know, maybe we don't uh, push that so far. Um, one thing I notice here, which I think is quite positive, is political correctness in America, I think, sometimes goes way too far. And particularly, um, I've spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East, I'd say, on the question of Israel, for example. People won't even talk about it, talk about the two sides of the issue, or more than one side of an issue. And I find in Britain there is more openness to these sorts of things. And I don't just mean about Israel, but about other issues, say, um, with um, other communities inside Britain, there's a lot more openness to talk about differences and how people respond to those, which I think is very good. And um, finally, I would also mention, and this, you, you touched on this, but I think this is ex incredibly important. The UK, um, uh, the special relationship, I'd say a lot of people in America do feel there's some sort of special relationship with Britain. Um, I remember somebody asked me, um, somebody from Nigeria asked me, who's America's closest ally? And I immediately said Britain. And they were, he was with a group of people from Nigeria, and he said, he was quite disappointed. He said, isn't it Canada? And I said, <laughs> I said, well, strategically, I guess, in a geographical sense, yeah. But um, no, but the UK is viewed by Americans quite positively, and you are a bridge for us. You are the only country in Europe that speaks English. If people are going to go to Europe, they will almost certainly come here. Um, and I've noticed living here, I almost can't go home now because the information I get here, the, the types of institutions that are here, a lot of them are hangovers from the empire, you know, kind of old imperial things that have morphed into the commonwealth, that have morphed into more genuine friendships, I'd say. I think are incredibly invaluable. And like you said, Americans are quite insular. And Britain can play that sort of role for us, yeah. sort of help us. We can play some things, play a role for you as well. But y you can help us too, and I don't think you realize your power. The BBC is incredibly important. I'm sure you know that already. But, uh, but you, you come from New York and Washington. It's important in New York and Washington. It's not it's important in Wichita. No, but they don't realize how important it is. That's the problem. No, it is important. It is important. But, you know, yeah. they just don't yeah. realize. And you mentioned no, that no, as I, well. I say to English audiences sometimes there is a, such a thing as a special relationship. And it's this. If you go to, if you fly to America, fly to Newark, New Jersey or somewhere, and get on one of those small planes that goes out into the middle of the flyover states and get out and go to Starbucks, because there will be the Starbucks, and go in and say, you know, hello, I'm from London. Could I have a cappuccino and a muffin? And then, oh my God! <laughs> and I, you know, I freely admit, I spent most of my eight years in America impersonating Hugh Grant. <laughs> and it does, I agree with you. It, it does, there is a connection. And I had a, a colleague, Matt Fry, who was the um, uh, Washington Correspondent before me, uh, who now is Channel 4 News, is a Washington Correspondent, a nice guy, uh, who's actually German, uh, as his name suggests, and um, 
you know, I used to tease him. Matt, Matt never. Matt is, is is English by adoption. He came here to, to. He went to Westminster and Oxford, so he has a very sort of English gentleman's background. Uh, but it's what does he accentuate? <laughs> Even in Germantown, Wisconsin, or wherever it is, he accentuates his Englishness for exactly the reason because there is. But it's among a certain type of American, and it's not the Americans who are going to be in charge in the longer term. Demographically, it, it's among you know your, your, your stolid Midwestern white guy feels something about England that is nice, uh, and about my accent that's 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 nice. But you know, some fellow who's arrived from Mexico uh, and his children, particularly if he marries a Laotian woman and they have kids together, their feeling of connection to England or my accent will be, uh, if not zero, then pretty minimal. Question in the back there. Well, we only had three cars when we were in the States. Um, so, you know, I like to think we've done our bit. Um, uh, uh, I never knew why we had the third, but anyway, we did eventually get rid of it. Um, no, is, is the answer. I mean, I, I think there is something. I mean, part of it is um, just the physical setup of the place. Um, if you're going to live a kind of modern lifestyle that people like to live, involving travelling around and doing things, uh, in the United States, um, it really is very big. And it's been built already in a big way, if you see what I mean. It's spread out. Um, and to, 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 you need to almost rethink the, the physical geography I mean, the, the, the human geography, the, 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 the environmental setup, in order to achieve what you and a billion other people around the world want America to achieve. And it's terribly difficult to do. The idea of public transport, even if you could convince Americans that public transport was a decent uh, thing to have, which outside of New York and some of the other big cities, frankly, people regard it as being a bit low life, really, to go on a, on a, on a, on a bus. Um, but even if you could convince Americans to do that, and Barack Obama has tried his best by banging on about trains, which people think he's a European-style socialist, whatever that means, <laughs> who obviously like trains. Um, uh, but, 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 you know, for, I mean, the obvious example that always strikes me is absolutely incredible. There's no proper train service. There's no real train service at all between Los Angeles and San Francisco. I was just actually, when you think of where they are and the connection and how you know you get one of those sort of modern European trains that hurtle along, you'd be there in an hour and a half, and it would be an enormous benefit to places on the way, etc., etc. I mean, we all know they don't do it, um, uh, and Obama's had a plan to do it, but I don't think it's, it's actually going to come to anything. And and it's 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 getting over that hurdle, convincing people that it's worth doing. But the problem in both Los Angeles and San Francisco, and the reason, the fundamental reason why they don't do it is you'd arrive at the station, and then what? You know, you haven't got your car. Los Angeles is quite big, um, incredibly spread out. Uh, it would probably work in San Francisco if the station was right in the middle of the town, but it probably wouldn't be. It would be built on the outside. There is a kind of physical problem 
to getting Americans out of their cars. And I felt this very much as someone who, who lived there and, and would have liked to have, have driven less. And actually, one of the things I really appreciate, never mind the environmental side of it, just sort of physical health part of it uh, and connection with your environment part of it. It is nice to be back in Britain and get out of the car. But in, in the States, it's terribly difficult. And it's not just about um, uh, persuading Americans that public transport is a good thing. It's also a matter of physically changing the way in which American cities are, are built and coping with the fact that a lot of Americans live in, in areas that are desperately, desperately remote. And to go anywhere at all, you just have to get in the car. So I think the answer is, is changing the cars rather than the, the sort of public transport. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are food shortages in, in the States. You don't need to go to other parts of the world. There are a lot of Americans don't eat great. And, and, and it's actually often the ones who are having the supersized portions. So, I mean, it, it is, in a sense, as, as, it's a separate issue, but it's a hugely important issue. Um, uh, and the prevalence of, of type 2 diabetes, um, which is a terrible, terrible ticking time bomb of a health issue, which all um, states, um, and I was reading today, um, that, that uh, in Kuwait, 20% um, uh, of the population is now either has type 2 diabetes or is pre-diabetic. So, I mean, it's a staggering world health problem, but it is very much an American, already an American health problem, and it is, it's, it's through eating too much and it's eating the wrong things. And in a sense, it's, you know, it goes along with the public transport and the cars and all the rest of it. This, I mean, I, I suppose if you were looking for a, a, a ray of hope, the cars have got smaller, which are frankly a person I found rather disappointing because I like the sort of idea of the glamorous things. Fins, they've, they've got rid of the fins. I think we can confirm the fins have gone. Um, but they need to go, I agree with you, they need to go an awful lot further in, in a whole lot of areas towards getting smaller in a big place. <coughs> Hi, um, I'm Juliet. I'm LSE alumni. Um, my particular area of interest is philanthropy, and the US is just leagues above the UK in the philanthropic sector. I mean, embarrassingly so. And I was just wondering what your opinions are about how we can catch up the US and whether we are welcome to be educated by the US or how the recession is affecting us and the global relationship the US is having is going to affect our welcoming their opinion or how we are going to make our philanthropic sector less embarrassing. Yeah, it's a really interesting area this. A part of it um, uh, can be done by better organisation of tax systems etc etc. I mean there are sort of structural things, process things that can be done. And Bill Gates is hugely involved. He was here yesterday on his way to, um, uh, to the G20. And I, I have a friend who, who uh, works for him. And, and, and Gates is, is willing um, uh, to school British billionaires in how to give money. Uh, although I did say to him, I'm not sure there are that many. But anyway, go, go for it. Um, uh, and there is a, a, 
and, and Gates will also school the British government in how best to encourage it through the tax system, etc., etc. And I think there have been some changes here, which you know better than I do, it, that, that have encouraged um, uh, philanthropic uh, behaviour in a way that, that it hasn't before. But, you know, the fact is that the real guts of the problem, I think, is, is, is cultural. Um, there's there's a, a school, um, uh, an international school in Washington, where they have the flags of all the um, countries from where the pupils come, uh, hanging proudly outside the school. Um, all the flags, that is, except the Union Jack. And there are British children at the school. So you inquire, why is, why is there no uh, British flag outside the school? Um, it turns out that, that the parents are expected to club together and buy <laughs> the flag and proudly hang it outside the school. You know, there's only one country where they say, well, sod that, we already paid enough in fees. We're not buying our flag, we don't care anyway. And there is a kind of, you know, it's, it's getting over that, um, that that is the difficulty. It's also it's also an issue of a on a smaller level. I think a lot of British institutions have a hard time asking for money because the partly because there's no cultural you know um, history of, of people giving money. I did a story once on um, these people who invited um, development officers for universities to come and learn how to ask for money better. And they did all this role playing where they had these actors pretend to be rich people, and then the the um, money raisers would try to get money out of them. So one of the exercises was there was this incredibly rich guy, and this guy, the um, officer, the financial officer from some one of these universities, was told to try to get a million pounds out of him. So he says, uh, uh, I wonder if it's okay if I could ask you to consider thinking about at some point possibly <laughs> donating a million pounds. And then he goes, but you don't have to do it now. <laughs> And the guy's like, you know, screw this, I'm leaving. And, you know, the first thing they said is you, your words, one million pounds, have to be the last thing, the last sound in the room until the other guy speaks. You've got to embarrass him into saying something. You can't just jump in in that British way and say, I'm so sorry, I embarrassed you. Quite fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, it's, a huge, it's a huge issue. And, and, you know, one can be flippant about it, and I have been, but... but I do, we have to find a way, and particularly in the future when um, there is not going to be as much of a um, social uh, net as there once was, that we have to find a way of persuading wealthy people who are basically untaxable. I mean, the, the, the approach here has always been, well, just tax them more, but you know in the modern global economy that's not going to work. They're going to find ways around it. It's, it's got to be um, a persuasion, and in America, it works. You get you write extent. off on your taxes. You write off your yeah. Although increasingly, you can hear actually as well. I, I'm not sure myself that the tax system is is, is that much of the answer. I, I think the cultural part of it is is much more. So you've got to make people want to you know, and, and you go anywhere. Um, uh, in, in the States and every kind of any tiny hospital ward is named after a person, usually a couple um, and here it, it, it's still not that common, you've got to persuade people that it's and, and here, but, but here, you know, a lot of people would say, oh look at them, they're bloody wealthy people, you know, they can go around naming hospital wards after themselves, I wish I had that kind of money, and it's a sort of completely different attitude and you've somehow got to address that if you're to get to, to where America is. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is how you can actually 
Yes. Yeah. I also think religion helps in, in, in that respect. I mean, but it's also not just wealthy people. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It, it, it goes right the way through society, um, and, and 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 it's a kind of skewed opposite of what we have. So they had a thing in Seattle many years ago where they had decided to have progressive road taxes. So if you drove a bigger car, you'd pay more road tax. You know, horrifically socialist. Uh, I, I, idea uh, and and uh, so they put it to a referendum, and um, uh, the the measure was voted down. Uh, and then there was some polling, some detailed polling analysis done of who voted which way. And lo and behold, all the wealthy people of Seattle have said it's a jolly good idea, we should pay more. All the poor people have said, no, no way, because one day we'll have a big car and we don't want to pay more tax. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a way of looking at the world that we just don't, don't have here. I think we have time for a couple more questions. Um, how about you in the middle there? Incredibly good point. Really good yeah. question. Yeah. It's a really interesting one. Could be the subject of a doctorate. Are you, is this, is, are you talking about a particular person? Or? I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but I seem to remember it was in one of the primaries. Yeah. Well, that, what, well that's, yeah, that's no, it, it's, it's what's his name in Virginia? Right. Uh, Macarca. Yeah, he called uh, someone in the yeah. So, I mean, this is, so it's um, George, oh God, what's his name? He's standing again, uh, much to people's surprise. So he was the Republican shoo-in to be elected governor of Virginia. This was in the midterms uh, before Obama came to power, so it's uh, 2006. Um, he was definitely going to win it. It's actually potentially going to be a presidential candidate. Um, uh, and his name, someone will know his name, uh, and shout it out. George Allen, that's it. George Allen, yeah. Um, good old boy, uh, you know, American football background, all the, had everything going for him. Um, he, he was being dogged by this guy, he had a little camera, in those days it wasn't phone cameras, it was still sort of camcorders, and uh, he, was gay, he was a Democrat, he was going around, to, and he was an Indian American, a South Asian American, and he was going to these things and he was asking him difficult questions and filming him quite close up, and George Allen cracked, he was at the Kentucky border, so right in the middle of nowhere, about 50 people, and he's standing on the top of a, of a hay bale. And suddenly he says, this guy here, you know, I wish we could get rid of him. This guy, and he says, Macaca. And, you know, it's not a common term of abuse in Kentucky. So no one took any notice of it. But exactly as you say, it was stuck onto YouTube. Uh, there was an absolute firestorm. It turned out it's a French-Algerian term of racial abuse. But, you know, the crucial thing is racial abuse. Uh, he was out of it. He did his, he apologized to everyone, but he was, he was finished. Um, as, a, as a candidate and he lost um, the election and although he is standing again I think this time around it was widely I mean it's basically his political career was shredded 
by, by that happening. And I think you're right in what you, you then go on to say that what the effect that that has is that politicians, um, albeit they shouldn't have said it, uh, are just desperately, desperately careful in all circumstances, always. And that, that doesn't necessarily make for relaxed, open, interesting political debate. And it's a real problem. I mean, here in good old old-fashioned Britain, Gordon Brown still manages to cock it up with just an old-fashioned lapel microphone. Um, uh, but, but, you know, it's coming to us. It interestingly didn't happen. I thought it was going to happen in our election as well. It didn't, actually. There, there wasn't really a kind of um, a, a social media gotcha moment. But it unquestionably is happening. And people are desperately, desperately um, uh, careful in private um, as well. And you look at what happened to Vince Cable, with the Telegraph journalists, who I did they did they did they take what they did? I mean, they yeah, just they taped it. And they they pretended they were. Well, yeah. yeah. So I mean, it, uh, it's a bad thing, but it's one of those bad things you just have to live with, isn't it? There's nothing much you can do about it. I mean, it's not a bad thing that people are exposed when they're doing bad things themselves, but it's a bad thing for political debate that people always feel themselves to be so buttoned up they can never be um, honest and relaxed. And I, I, I do worry about that on both sides of the Atlantic. Justin, I'm John Mayer. I brought you here. Um, two questions which are possibly linked. Did you fall in love with America too much? And didn't the LSE teach you to hate America? The LSE taught me nothing about America at all, except that uh, I enjoyed the company of Americans at the LSE much more than I thought I was going to. So I was at a rather um, insulated, isolated Quaker school, brought up in sort of socialist English tradition. My mother was a very keen uh, left-winger, member of CND and um, uh, um, uh, Greenham Common protester in her time as well. And I came to the LSE, and people I liked most actually was were... Um, Americans who turn up with those funny little rucksacks on. You don't see the weather. Well, actually, I think you have got one somewhere. Uh, and say, where's the gym? And you know, sort of up behind their backs. And actually, in the end, they'd then say, you know, why don't we go out and have a drink? And you'd, you'd find that you were just, just uh, in love with the openness um, and, and cheerfulness um, of these people and their receptiveness. Um, at least the ones who come here rather than stay in Wisconsin or wherever, to, 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 to outside ideas. So the LSE broadly actually introduced me to an aspect of Americans that I uh, hadn't uh, previously really thought of. Did I then fall in love too much with it? I mean, possibly so. Um, you, you, it's an interesting thing about being a foreign correspondent, what the purpose of it is. Um, should you always maintain a kind of disparaging detachment from the nation you're in? Or should you kind of live the life and, and do a little bit of what diplomats abroad are meant to be, which is sort of explaining them back to your your host nation? I think it's a fine balance, actually. I think you do need to keep sceptical, even in a place that's very comfortable and happy to live in. But, you know, the fact is a lot of British current correspondents go to Washington, spend you know, the first three years of their time there um, just completely disparaging the whole place and then ask for an extension. <laughs> uh, and at least I avoided that hypocrisy. I asked for an extension, having also said that I love the place and everything about it and got it for a few years. Hello, 
Hello, Sarah. You might remember me. This is Elaine. Um, and I wanted to ask um, Justin, what he, since this is also the Media Society, um, what, does, what does he think the difference is between the British and the American press? And you know, I know you talked quite a bit about um, the cable stations, but it does appear that the British tabloids are really like cable. Um, maybe even a bit like talk radio in America, and you know the press is under scrutiny here now. And um, I went to the seminars at the Levinson Inquiry, and you know the British press—they're really trying. They want like something like the First Amendment in America, and I think the Society of Editors is having their conference in a few weeks, and I think they've entitled it the Magna Carta Two or something. Hmm. Yeah. So, and I was really surprised there were. No other Americans there at the Levinson Inquiry. I mean, I was there myself in a Bloomberg reporter, and I'm, I was there as a libel victim, actually. And I really think this is a, a, a crucial time and a really important time for the American press to, to explain how the First Amendment works to the British press. And, and, you know, there's a parliamentary committee on, I mean, well, there's a defamation bill at the moment. There's another committee on the super injunctions. There's just so much going on right now, and, and it doesn't seem like there's enough interaction. Yeah. I, mean, I agree with you about the First Amendment, but it's in, in a sense a wider argument than about the press. We don't generally much approve of freedom of speech in, in Britain. Uh, we, we curtail it in all sorts of ways, uh, major and minor. And I mean, I was talking about it a little while ago, the impartiality stuff that we, that we enforce on broadcasting. I mean, why? And you could, you know, I, I was suggesting that it has a, a beneficial effect on, on political debate. I think you would equally argue, and I think people will increasingly argue in this country, well, I mean, let's treat people like adults. I mean, you should be able to say whatever you like, I and mean, why on earth not? Um, and it's an important freedom. Uh, in this country, we don't have it enshrined, and we don't generally, I think, uh, fully um, believe in it. So that's sort of one point about, about um, freedom of, of speech. But the, the issue for me about uh, American newspapers is they're incredibly boring, um, with some exceptions. Uh, uh, <laughs> So, you know, you, 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 and actually, you know, to be even-handed about it, both the, the, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are exceptions to that. But I think the Washington Post is a, is a, is a pretty grim paper now in terms of its um, readability. And I think a lot of American papers, as well as the provincial papers, have sort of fallen away into a failure to tell stories that captivate people's imaginations, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, the British tabloids have had a bit of a bum rap recently, and they have done some pretty terrible things, but they still manage to captivate. And you think of the great cricketing scandal that's just come to, to light, only because of the news of the world. They've managed to, to tell stories that are genuinely interesting and genuinely um, scandalous often, and they have a role in doing that. And I think it would be very sad if we went into the American newspaper tradition of being incredibly accurate. Uh, accurate. <laughs> that was the word I was struggling for. <laughs> and treating people accurately and all the rest of it. I think we'd sort of lose something there. And, and, and the, my, my evidence for that is, um, oh, what's his name, who was, who was standing for, for the presidency and who's, um, I can't remember his name because I'm, I'm over... Over, past my bedtime, but um, uh, his wife had cancer, breast cancer, and subsequently died. Yeah. So John Edwards, you know, uh, John Edwards was exposed by a British-style tabloid, actually run by Brits. I think it's fair to say, yeah, which is National Enquirer's. Um, and you know, you know, many of the stories about flying saucers. Uh, are probably not true that are in the National Enquirer, but that one story about John Edwards was. 
Well, I hope that we don't go in myself, as a person I've been, I hope in this country we don't sort of panic over our papers and, and dullify them uh, in, in a way that, that would not do us any favours in, in the longer term. Should we have two more quick questions, please? I'll let Peter ask something. It'd be, it'd be, All um, right, yes. He runs the show. <laughs> You're allowed to ask questions. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the power of Washington lobbyists, because you were talking earlier about you know, the inability to create substantive change. Whatever politicians say, nothing really appears to happen. People like Thomas Frank believe that's because of the power and increasing power and budgets of Washington lobbyists that the deal's done beforehand. You know, with, uh, for instance, socialized medicine, as, as it would be called in America, um, very modest reforms, seen off, so it appeared, um, penalties for Wall Street, seen off, so it would appear, because of the power of lobbyists. Is that true? How does it all work? So, I mean, the, the, the degree of sophistication of lobbying in the United States and the amount of money that is held by lobbyists and spent by them um, uh, is... is so huge that it has reached um, a, 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 a state where many, many Americans uh, on both sides of the political divide are seriously worried. And the issue that we have to understand as Brits when we're talking about American lobbying is it, it's, it's not simply that they are getting in at an early stage and affecting legislation, although they certainly are managing to do that. The, 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 the real problem is that the money skews America's political system. So one of the things which I think I say in the book is that, is that, is that America has too many elections. Um, so in the House of Representatives, the, the, one of the byproducts of the fact that, that members of the House are uh, re-elected every two years is they have a desperate need for money. Um, they desperately need to build up war chests in order to keep their seats. That then makes them beholden to all manner of, of, of wealthy people, wealthy individuals, but also wealthy corporations. Um, if you could, you know, so the way it seems to me to, to cut down on lobbying, given that you can't stop it happening, partly because of the First Amendment, um, it, it, it is, is that you, you reduce... Um, and it's you know, a pretty easy thing, isn't it, to change the US Constitution. I think they should tomorrow announce that they're going to stop elections for uh, the House of Representatives being every two years. I think that would, that, they need to, to kind of look at really thoroughgoing change that means that the money plays less of a part in, in, in the system. You can't stop the lobbyists contacting the folks because I, I just don't see how under the American system you could you could sort of introduce that as a rule. But what you can do, it seems to me, and what you need to do is find ways in which the money is less important to American politicians and they are therefore more able to do things to wealthy corporations and wealthy people that they would, on both sides of the political divide, um, like to do. So, I mean, it is, it's a huge problem, but I, I, don't think the, I don't think regulation of lobbyists, which we would naturally think of in Britain as being the answer, I don't think that works in the States. I think there have to be more imaginative um, solutions, if indeed there are to be solutions. One last question, make it a fantastic question. Um, this lady here. Monica Berbo, I was just wondering whether you think 
Um, the special relationship involves uh, mind control games uh, between the USA and the Brit and the United Kingdom, because there have been very famous cases of uh, mind control experiments. Whoa! So hang on, we are all controlled by them, or are they by us? No, both. You both. do it both. Yeah. Well, the thing them is, and if, us. If, if that is true, and it's a fascinating idea, then I was as much controlled as anyone else because I, you know, went there and fell in love with the place and uh, and 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 came back. I think there's a whole range of, of ways in which we interact, and I hope we continue to interact in, in ways that enrich us both. But I think the biggest, I mean, the really you know, fundamental issue is this understanding whether or not we're, it's a mind game or, or um, is being affected from outside us. I mean, actually, physical Well, no, I think we, we need to... We probably need to... I don't write about that in the book, I have to say. No. No. I think I'm no. going to just stop us here, if that's okay, because we've just All reached right, the no, last time, if that's okay. No, thank you. Sure. And if everyone could go, the book is on sale outside in a nice everyone. place. Everyone. Well, that's ambitious. But, you know, and every Justin, second person Justin would be great. will write um, special little notes just for you and your families, if you ask him. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.